Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors who are working at the front lines of the field. Translating Aging is sponsored by BioAge, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Bob Hughes, VP of Biochemistry at BioAge. With us today for our inaugural episode is Dr. Eric Verdon, CEO of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging and Professor of Medicine at University of California, San Francisco. Eric, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Bob. Uh, delighted to be here. So. As you mentioned, I'm currently president and CEO at the Buck Institute. You want to hear a few words about my career? Absolutely. So I, I started in Belgium. I grew up in, uh, in a town called Liège, the French part of uh, southern Belgium. Went to medical school there with an interest of doing research after medical school. Eventually ended up doing a postdoc at Harvard Medical School from where I started my interest in uh, metabolism and aging. I've held a number of uh, faculty positions at different places, including the NIH and at the Gladstone Institute at UCSF for 15 years. About four years ago, I had the amazing opportunity to take over the, the leadership of the Buck Institute. And I've been there for the last four years, combining my time between uh, leading a lab, which continues to be studying uh, the biology of aging, in particular the interface between epigenetics, immunology, metabolism, and the aging process, and also directing the institute, which encompasses looking at strategic direction, hiring faculty, and essentially helping the institute to thrive. Hmm. You know, one of the things that I've always been curious about you, Eric, is that you have a background in virology, and I'm wondering how you sort of evolved from virology into aging? It's a good question. In some way, I have, I have worked on too many different fields. It tends to confuse people who, are, who have spent their whole life working in a single field. I think one of the great privileges of being a basic scientist is that you can essentially study whatever you want. And I, I have a lot, of, a lot of interest and a lot of curiosity. And so the way I got into aging was we were studying HIV transcription and this led to the cloning and the identification of HDACs, histone deacetylases, as epigenetic, epigenetic regulators of HIV transcription. And so from this work, we ended up cloning a series of proteins that are called HDAC3 through HDAC7. And we've got a bit of work on these, on, on the role of, of reversible protein acetylation in, in viral infection. But eventually, we were drawn to the work that was pioneered by Lenny Garanti and colleagues who showed that the sirtuins were actually also protein deacetylases. And so I recall at that point, one of my students asked me whether we should be looking whether they were equivalent in the mammalian genome, in the human genome of the sirtu protein, which had been identified in yeast. And so the student, Brian North, actually cloned and sequenced the mammalian sirtuins. 
And from there, we ended up uh, focusing on three of them, 33, 4, and 5, which were all present in the mitochondria and getting closer and closer to the biology of aging. It was somewhat circuitous way to get into aging research, but I just found uh, at that point, as the HIV problems was waning and aging was sort of coming to the front, I just found it an irresistible topic to study. Let me ask you this. So we want to touch on a number of concepts, both you know social, basic biology, but also pharmaceutical. So since taking over the Buck Institute, what do you see as the most compelling questions facing aging research from that perspective? There are many key questions. I think one of the things that really strikes me is how young this field is and the field of really of molecular study of aging is already about less than 30 years old and how one of the things that really drew me to the field is this realization that this is a field where fundamental questions still remain to be answered. I think, you know, one of the probably best known sort of synthesis or review paper is the hallmarks of aging. And one thing that strikes me when looking at this paper is that it paints a almost a pointillistic or impressionistic picture of aging with a number of hallmarks that seem to be happening independently of each other. I'm fascinated by the idea that even though we have identified key mechanism of aging, we do not really have a good sense of the hierarchy between these these hallmarks. Or is one of them superseding the others? I'm, I'm struck also by the fact that chronic inflammation, which we study and we think is, a, is really a key aspect of the aging process, was not even listed in that collection. So I think one of the things that fascinates me is really the idea of establishing clearer links between these hallmarks of aging and hopefully a somewhat of a more unified theory of aging. I think the, you know, obviously the implications of this finding is at this point we have a number of interventions that target each of these hallmarks of aging, but we don't do not have a good sense, again, of which combination of these drugs or, or interventions is actually going to be a synergistic or in sometimes the opposite. So we published a paper in this past year that showed, for example, a clear link between senescence and NAD metabolism. And so these are the types of studies that, to me, are, are exciting and important, really understanding better the relationship between the different manifestations of aging and, and using this information to target aging in a more effective manner. I was planning on getting into NAD a little bit later, but before we do, I wanted to ask you, it's interesting that you talk about the, you know, the so-called hallmarks of aging and they've been enumerated as, you know, senescence, stem cell exhaustion, mitochondrial dysfunction, etc. But it has been suggested that there are basic mechanisms that underlie all these things and pathways that have been implicated as being kind of more basic are things like TOR, for instance. Do you think that these are really independent, parallel sort of pathologies, or do you think that there's a way to tie them together with underlying pathways? They clearly are related, and I think we have, 
will not have the time to go through all of the examples, but we spent some time just looking at what are the relationships. You know, if you think about NAD metabolism, is itself involved in stem cell function, it's involved in epigenetic regulation, it's involved in mitochondrial function, for the simple reason, for example, that NAD is a critical cofactor for the sirtuins, so that sirtuins actually are present in every single subcompartment of a cell. One of the things that really is quite interesting is this idea of bringing system biology and it's the power of bioinformatics to aging and moving beyond the idea that one pathway or one molecule, as you indicated, the TOR pathway, is just one cellular pathway, which is, for example, incredibly, exquisitely intricated with insulin signaling, for example, or nutrient sensing. So I think the idea that you know there are unique pathways or single cause of aging, I think obviously have been discounted. No, no one really believes there's a single cause of aging. But what really is lacking is a better integration and an understanding of how working on one aspect influences the other. And I think this is where we're probably going to have to occupy our our time in the next few years. You brought up the question of NAD metabolism. You know, one obvious reason to be interested in that is because of its connection to the regulation of sirtuins. Can you just comment on NAD metabolism as a key feature of aging? Yes. Well, there are multiple ways in which NAD metabolism really affects aging. The best way probably to think about this is there are two broad classes of enzymes that utilize NAD. There is a subgroup of enzymes of which the sirtuins are part, but also polyADP ribose polymerase, a CD38, CD157. This whole group of enzyme utilize NAD not only as a cofactor, but also as a co-substrate. And in that process, the NAD is actually cleaved into nicotinamide and ADP ribose or cyclic ADP ribose. So these are what we call the NAD-consuming enzymes. So that's the first group of enzymes. The second group of enzymes are all oxidoreductase. We use the NAD-NADH couple to actually drive oxidoreductive reactions. And the difference between these two classes of enzyme is the the oxidoreductase do not cleave the NAD, they, they just use it in its either in its oxidated or reduced form. Now, what is happening during aging is that NAD levels decrease. And that has been documented in a variety of organisms, including in human cells, but also in mice, in, in Drosophila and C. elegans and others. And it's been documented in multiple cell types and multiple organs. So the thing that we proposed about five years ago in a review was that obviously everybody's been trying to understand why is NAD level decrease. Now, the decrease in NAD levels has really important implications, both not only for the sirtuins, who we know have global anti-aging effect or at least protective effect, and the other, all of the oxidoreductase, which are critical for intermediary metabolism. So if you decrease NAD levels, it's not hard to imagine how this can have deleterious consequences on a whole variety of things. The decreased metabolic efficiency, but also decreased protective activity of the PARPs and decreased protective activity of the sirtuins. So our interest has been trying to understand why are NAD levels decreasing during aging? And we propose in this review that I was just mentioning competing mechanism where 
if the activity of one of these consuming enzymes becomes dominant during aging, one would expect that NAD levels would decrease. Another thing that's important to know is that when NAD is cleaved by these enzymes and generates nicotinamide, the nicotinamide needs to be recycled back into NAD. This is the so-called salvage pathway, which we know is really critical if you inhibit it by blocking an enzyme called NAMPT, within actually three to four hours, we can deplete NAD levels down to close to zero and induce cell killing. So that really points to the importance of this salvage pathway. So it had been proposed before that maybe one of the reasons for the depletion of NAD during aging was the salvage pathway, but we we at Watercini, at Mayo Clinic, and us have actually proposed an alternative model that the CD38 molecule might be important as well. And finally, another player that has been brought up by other groups, including Johan Aurex and colleagues, is the role of PARP, which tends to be activated by DNA damage. And we know DNA damage is yet another manifestation of aging. And one of the best examples of this is our these diseases in which there is chronic DNA damage because there's a defect in repair. And I'm thinking of uh, some of the uh, DNA damage repairs, such as ataxia telangiectasia or others, all are associated with a chronic DNA damage and chronic NAD depletion and accelerated aging. That was a very, very nice technical description of NAD metabolism. In this podcast, we want to reach out to both aging or just, you know, the scientific community as well as the general public. I suspect that there are folks out there who are aware that there's been a suggestion that NAD supplementation could be, you know, helpful in aging and disease. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of comment on that for more of a lay audience. Yeah, clearly. And we've actually have worked actively in that area and and are still working with a a number of companies. So given the fact that NAD levels are decreasing, there's been an interest in, in trying to restore these NAD levels. And one way to do this is two potential precursors to NAD, uh, one called nicotinamide riboside, or NR, and the other one uh, called nicotinamide mononucleotide, or NMN. And both of these have been explored in the literature and in humans, and both of those actually restore NAD levels to some degree. And in animal models, have been both of these supplements have been shown to actually alleviate some of the complication associated with aging. So one of the big unknown at this point is whether either one of them is going to be sufficient to suppress aging in humans. And while I am incredibly excited by the idea that these molecules are coming to the front and we are able to buy them and to test them, because they are supplement, there are some worries as to whether these actually are going to be tested truly for their efficacy. Uh, as you know, you can sell supplements without any demonstrated efficacy. And I think we, one of the things that I'm, the activities that I'm the most excited to be associated with is the idea of uh, conducting clinical trials that will rigorously test whether these supplements are not only safe, we, we have all the evidence that they are safe, but are they actually efficient? And do we actually do what we want to do? Sure. I mean, part of what we're trying to accomplish here is speak to experts in the field about 
what are the translational opportunities in aging research? There are a lot of startups that are emerging around the Bay Area that are attempting to address aging directly. I'm just wondering what your general thinking is on the Bay Area startup culture and as it directly impacts aging research. It's a great question. We are, as as you know, at a really critical and amazingly interesting phase in, in aging research where the last 20 to 25 years have seen a proliferation of new information and new understanding of aging, the identification of molecular pathways, and really a much more precise understanding of aging, even though it is still largely incomplete. And this obviously has created a number of amazing opportunities for translation. And by translation, I I mean not only studying these processes in humans, but also launching companies that aim to really target some of these molecular pathways. And one of the things that is particularly exciting about the Bay Area is that because of its startup culture, we have many of these companies uh, surrounding us. I have a couple that I have helped uh, launch at the Buck Institute. One of them is uh, Napa Therapeutics, which is interested in understanding what is the mechanism of NAD decrease during aging and targeting it. The other company is called BHB Therapeutics, and this company is actually involved in understanding the, the role of ketogenesis and particularly the protective role of one of the ketone bodies called beta-hydroxybutyrate. And so, you know, these companies are just two examples of a whole ecosystem that is rapidly developing in, in the Bay Area, along with the presence of many incredible groups uh, studying aging at Stanford, at Berkeley, at UCSF, at Davis, and, and at the Buck. From a kind of a translational point of view, one of the challenges that the aging research field from a translational perspective faces is that aging is not in and of itself recognized as a disease or something that's, quote, reimbursable. I believe we now have an ICD code for something called frailty. It's very difficult to run a clinical trial in the delay of aging, if you will. And so we have to focus on more acute indications within aging. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about what are good strategies for companies to think about if their long-term goal is to treat aging, what should they be thinking about in terms of more short-term indications? It's a very good question. And one that, you know, having been associated with a number of companies over the last 20 years that have been targeting aging, every one of these companies has been confronted with. So the way that most companies have decided to tackle the problem is to actually use the knowledge of aging and its pathways to target really unique indications. I mean, a good example would be a Unity, which is targeting senescence and conducted clinical trials on knee osteoarthritis, because we know this is a condition in which there's massive senescence in the knee. Other indications that people in the senescence field are pursuing would be idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, for example. I think this is probably still the major way by which companies in the aging space right now are trying to find applications for their drugs. 
Now, the hope is that once you have identified a drug that targets senescence, for example, in the knee, is that the same molecule could be sort of used for further indications where senescence is also prevalent. I think that's been the underlying assumption by which most companies actually are working. In addition to this, there's a movement, which I think is equally important. This is the idea that you alluded to of of defining aging as a disease. Now, as a physician, there's a part of me that resists the idea of calling aging a disease, but clearly aging itself is a risk factor for a whole series of diseases. So one of the things that we have seen, and I think this is partly the way I suspect that the FDA or whatever the regulatory authorities are going to be resisting the idea of calling aging a disease. And if you do not believe me, I, I invite you to discuss this with your colleagues, physician, and you will see in general that this is an idea that is very popular in the aging field, but is, is extremely resisted to by the medical world. And at some point, we're going to have to work with, with them to get these ideas into medicine. So the alternative ideas is to actually identify a series of novel indications that are clearly linked to aging. And you mentioned frailty. That's a really good example. This is a disease that was not did not exist when I trained medical school, which is clearly linked to accelerated aging and for which we don't have treatment. Another example would be sarcopenia. So this is the loss of muscle mass associated with aging. Again, a specific indication that I think is gaining acceptance and could be important in the future. I'll give you another example. The lack of response to vaccine, I guess an issue that we are particularly all aware of right now because of the the launching and the deployment of the COVID vaccine. Turns out if you are above 70 years old, less than 30% of people above 70 are expected to respond to a vaccine. And we know that this can be alleviated via a variety of interventions. One of those being rapamycin that has been tested and shown to increase vaccination rates. Right. So Novartis demonstrated that pre-treatment with rapamycin increased response to influenza vaccine, I believe, right? Exactly. This was a restore bio and germanic. Unfortunately, you know, they conducted a phase two trial, which failed, but the end response was not vaccination rate. It was protection from pneumonia. And I think this might have been a reason why that trial actually failed. There's one more example, which is a thymic atrophy. This is a clear manifestation of aging or, you know, early infertility. Also, early menopause, two manifestations of the aging process for which we don't have therapies and could be targeted in the future. Since you bring up reproductive senescence, I'm tempted to ask you about the fact that that at the Buck, you have a center for looking at this, right? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So this was a center that was created a couple of years ago. It's actually both a center and a consortium. So we were approached by uh, Nicole Shanahan, who is the wife of Sergey Brin, and she had been confronted herself at a relatively young age with a fertility problem. And she was actually stunned to learn that a significant fraction of women can have fertility problem even in their 30s. And when she started inquiring who was studying this, there was essentially a very poorly studied process. 
Now, there's another interesting aspect of this is that we have evidence that this early infertility is really linked to an aging process because it turns out that women who have early menopause or early infertility, one also sees a shortened lifespan in their brothers. So there's clearly something genetic in some families that links both accelerated aging and early infertility. So Nicole Shanahan approached us and she asked us what we thought about the problem. And I, what I proposed to her is to create a center at the Buck, which would bring people who study a female reproductive biology at the Buck and to put them in contact with the scientists who study aging. And the hope was that at this intersection, would, something would emerge that would be a better understanding of processes that drive aging in the female reproductive system. And so Nicole has funded the center uh, for the first five years, and we have a mission and a goal to really study this process and to hopefully increase uh, female reproductive longevity. The second step to this uh, interaction with Nicole Shanahan was the creation of a consortium, which is now a worldwide organization, which is centered at the Buck, which is a granting mechanism for scientists that are not at the Buck to study of reproductive longevity. And so both the consortium and the center have been launched. We issued a number of grants last year, and we're in the process of planning our first annual meeting. And I think what Nicole will have succeeded in doing is to create a novel ecosystem that will address this important problem. Wonderful. With regards to aging research, as a person who's worked in the field, there's this kind of tension between compression of morbidity and life extension and health span versus lifespan. And I'm wondering if you could comment on that. It's one that preoccupies us as well, because uh, there are obviously two goals that might seem to be disparate, but it, I'm convinced that they are more linked to each other than, than we think. It turns out, at least in many of the animal model systems in which we can increase lifespan, we also increase health span. Now, another example of this is what centenarians do. They not only live longer than most of us, but they also spend a smaller fraction of their life being sick, about 5% on average versus 15% for most of us. So the average population lives to 78 to 80 and spends about 15% of their lives afflicted by one of the chronic diseases of aging. So that means by age 68, most people actually start, their health starts to decline. Now, if you look at the delta between centenarians and the general population, it's from 68 to 95, is a huge delta. And I think this is what we're working on. Obviously, the biggest emergency from my standpoint as a physician is really to alleviate disease. If we think, you know, increasing lifespan without health span doesn't really make any sense. And actually, when we speak to the population in general, the general public in general, not many people are really interested in increasing uh, lifespan because their perception of old age is actually is that it's a difficult period, which one is uh, afflicted by chronic diseases. So as a way to, to target what we are trying to do at the back, we speak more about health span than lifespan. Now, it's clear that you know for the last 150 years, our, our lifespan has continued to increase at a rate of about two years per decade. And I think I see no reason to think that this is going to be changing. So that means our lifespan is going to continue to increase. 
And I think our major goal is really to make sure that these gained years actually are quality years spent with people who are fully in command of their mental and physical abilities. Well, okay, so here's a really difficult question. You know, this notion of maximum lifespan, it's been described for various species, I'd say, for humans, a rough number is 120 or something like that. And so the notion is that no matter what you do, well, obviously it changes in worms or mice or whatever, but you know, no matter what you do, you kind of hit this wall. And let's say the wall is 120 in humans, and you can compress the morbidity as much as you want, but no human will live to be 150 or 200. What is your thinking on that? The way I think about this is today, based on what we know and based on what we have tested, and based on a very large sample, think about the billions of people who have lived on the Earth, it's very hard to go above 115. Uh, a few people have reached 117, and then you have a jump from 117 to 122, which is Jean Calment, which has made some people question whether this was actually real. So I would say today, based on everything, and you could say based on everything that we have done so far, or exceptional genetics, or the best living conditions, the maximum that one can live would be around 117. And I think it's going to be a very difficult barrier to cross. However, I'm also excited about what we are doing today in biology. If you had told me 20 years ago or 30 years ago what we are capable of doing in the lab and at what speed we're doing it, and I'm thinking about CRISPR-Cas9 and, and all of this, the rate at which we generate transgenic or, or knockout animals, I probably would not have believed you that, you know, within my lifetime, we would be doing things with such ease and at such speed. So I think it's extremely hard to predict what we're going to be able to do in the near future, especially when we start, you know, using genetic engineering and so on. Obviously, one of the things that gives me some degree of pause is if it were easy, we would already have done it in mice. And we know there's a huge barrier between what we are able to do in mice and what we are able to do in humans. So I tend to be on the side of the, not a pessimist because I'm, I'm fundamentally optimistic, but I'm also measuring the difficulty that lie ahead of, of us when we start thinking about doing things in humans. You know, the, the whole medical world is based on the idea that first do no harm. And so while, you know, some people might take it upon themselves to make some drastic modifications or use whatever they want to do to live longer, the only way we're going to get to this is by doing clinical trials. We're going to need really good biomarkers of aging. So I guess the long way to summarize what I'm trying to say is that I'm incredibly optimistic of what we're going to be doing in the future. But also, I think we should be realistic about the difficulties that lie in this path. And I think this is where I tend to be a little more on the conservative side in terms of what will be achievable in the next, for example, 50 years or 30 years. What do you think is the most exciting thing that's happening in aging research today? There are so many. <laughs> At the back, are very involved in the, in the study of, of senescence. I think with the leadership of Judy Campisi as one of our faculty members, we really have built an incredible group of collaborating scientists that are really 
pushing the envelope on what senescence means and really extracting uh, some potential novel therapeutic applications. I think that's certainly, from my standpoint at the buck, this is one of the most exciting areas of, of aging science. I think it's just an incredible privilege for me and, and for many of my colleagues to be in a field in which we feel there are so many low-hanging fruits, so many things to discover. And frankly, I mean, such amazing possibility to really change the way medicine is conducted. I think if you think about the way medicine functions today, it's not healthcare, it's what I call sick care. So it's a reactive mode of looking at health by which you wait until people get really sick, for example, a heart attack, and then you treat them and you help them survive. I think what the science of aging is really bringing to the fore is the idea of a, a system understanding of biology and a preventative model of medicine and by which we hope to actually help people age better and to prevent the occurrence of these diseases at the first place. So for me as a physician, the more I read about the biology of aging, the identification of these biomarkers, I think it's an incredible time to be in this field. And uh, I suspect that uh, when we look back 20 or 30 years from now, we will really look at this period as, as the birth of a whole new age of biology and, and health. Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Verdon, for spending time with us and giving you your expert views on this extremely important topic. Thanks for listening. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com or on Twitter at bioagepodcast. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.